how did you hear about it? Here's the funny thing for me is I heard about it. My dad called me. So it was like, I guess around five o'clock Eastern time. I think the news dropped around 4.30 Eastern time. And my dad, uh, 82-year-old Bob Gruber, great health, plays golf every day, doing great. Very lucky that he's in such great health. Glad to have him around. Not not really, uh, doesn't really understand much of what I do. Doesn't, is not a computer person, uh, you know, as, uh, and, and so therefore doesn't really follow closely what I write about, uh, has long not really understood how I make a living, but is, you know, seems to understand that I'm doing well, that I'm well, well known. You know, he watched my, uh, my, my, uh, live episode of the talk show on YouTube said he didn't understand almost any of it, but he thought it was a very nice show. <laughs> I don't want to, it's very, very classic dad. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he calls me up. You know, we talk on the phone almost every day. Every time my phone rings, it is either my dad or it is a uh, it's a robocall. <laughs> it's pretty much the only phone calls I get. <laughs> I very much enjoy my daily phone calls with my dad. I I, I I really do. I generally don't get breaking news that matters to me <laughs> from, from <your> dad. my dad. <laughs> yeah. But my dad calls me up and he's like, John, it's dad here. And of course, he always says that, you know. Right, which is surprise, surprise, you, you you had no idea. Right, let me know who it is. <laughs> and uh, he says, I'm watching the TV, and they're saying that uh, that this fellow at Apple, Joni, Joni Ive, is is uh, leaving the company. And I'm like, what? And he's like, Jimmy, Jimmy Ive. <laughs> John, John. You're, you're like, Jimmy Ive. So he like <laughs> called him Joni, <laughs> called him Johnny, called him Jimmy. And... Uh, and he's like he's at, he's leaving the company. That's what they're saying. And and uh, I you know I, I I I'm surprised. I did not expect it per se, but it wasn't totally shocking. But I effectively had to say, well, then I I got to go, right? And right. he's like, I understand. He's like, I just wanted you to know. And I'm like, well, thanks. And then you know I went and hit the inter- internet, and uh, of course, you know he was out. Uh. I, it was a very strange way for me to hear about it, though. I, you know, from <laughs> from, from your dad, from my eighty-two-year-old dad who doesn't really understand the company and really wasn't sure how to pronounce uh, his first name. <laughs> well, I found out uh, as with most things via via Twitter. Um, I, I'm looking at at my my feed. It was around five twelve p.m. I was not surprised because I feel like this has been sort of a a long slow exit out the door and this is sort of formalizing something that's been the case for a while so yeah. um i mean it's, it's it's one of those things you know uh you don't want to do the i told you so but i i, I yes, you do. Do. yes you do that's why <laughs> that is exactly this entire the entire reason i thought well i have to a i have to write about it right away and then i thought the next thing i got to do is i got to record an episode of my show tomorrow who do i have on and i was like i gotta have ben thompson because he can do uh two hours if i told you so well, no, it's more the case that when, when 
a few years ago. This was four years ago when he became chief design officer. Uh, and he was a chief design officer with no one actually sort of reporting to him, or at least in sort of a managerial context. Right. That to me, that was, you know, a big red flag that he's kind of definitely stepping back from what he was doing. And I wrote this at the time, and, and it's more like uh, I, I'm okay to pass on the I told you so. I figure like they'll accumulate it and people can, can do that. This one, I got so much grief about it. Like people were coming at me from left and right, right. Uh, Apple fans in particular, because this was a day, it was a daily update, but I had made it free because I thought it was sort of a really big deal. And so this was more of a uh, uh, still sort of licking my wounds uh, from four years ago that I, I felt compelled to sort of point this out. Uh, I will say this, that from what I have heard so far from friends, sources, little birdies at Apple, at least at Apple, it is uh, a bit of a surprise. Uh, almost, and one one even said shocking. You know, even though not not in terms of the fact that like uh, nobody thought it might not happen. Like I think people have been thinking, you know, in, even inside Apple that this, you know, he, he might be easing his way out the door. But it, they still found it shocking. Like it's not like oh, everybody at Apple kind of knew this was coming. You know, they, yeah, well, I think, I, I think everybody, like, I, you, I think you everybody shocked, but not surprised. Yeah. Right? I, like, I think that, right. yeah, it was definitely shocking. Like you, he's such an institution that, that you would think, you know, it, it, it is a shock. So I guess I'm wrong to say that it isn't, right. but it's more like it's, it's when you think about it for two seconds, like, yeah, I guess that, I guess that kind of makes sense. Right. I mean, one of the things is, you know, he, he's, he's not that old. I think he's 51. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's certainly not retiring. Uh, or, uh, you know, according to, you know, what they're saying, uh, you know, he, he's not done designing. He's not done working. Uh, it, there's it, a lot, of, uh, quite a few, I would guess. I, I, I haven't gone through the entire list of Apple's executive bio page to figure out their ages, but uh, he's he's not even close to the oldest, right? He's younger than Tim Cook. He's younger than Phil Schiller. He's, you know, there's quite a few people on, on the executive team who are older than him. Um, I don't know, but it, the whole thing is a bit weird, right? It's, I mean, I, I don't know because I mean, well, first off, just in it, putting he, in the, the bigger context, like, like I said, you, there's things to suggest that this was coming, but I think if you back up and think about it, the, you know, what did Johnny Ive do? Like, what, right. what, 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 what was he about? And, you know, I wrote about it this morning, my daily update that, you know, the, if you if you go back, like to me, the mo- the biggest, most important uh, Johnny Ive product is, is the iMac. But but sort of, you know, a couple of years on after the iMac, you had the iMac running OS 10 with iTunes on it. And if you kind of squint, that's basically the same product that Apple shipped for the next 20 years. Right. It just sort of changed the name to being iPhone, iOS and App Store. But it was the that like that idea, that triumvirate is what Apple is what Apple was about. And we haven't had a chance to talk uh, on the podcast since WWDC, but one thing that was really compelling to me about WWDC and I thought was so interesting was it really felt like that chapter of Apple was sort of drawing to a close. Mm. And I thought it was actually fairly significant, momentous that you had iTunes being shut down and you had Swift UI coming along, which which in many respects kind of closed that door on that era of operating systems also. And if you think about it, like Johnny Ive, that, that was the Johnny Ive era and that aspect of apple in everything from the products that drive the growth 
to sort of the the structure of Apple being a sort of top down dictatorship, very streamlined, very fun- functional organization, things that, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of organizational structure and those sorts of things like that's also sort of falling apart and going by the wayside as well, which is what happens when companies get to the size that Apple is. So if, I think if you zoom out, th- there is a lot about this, about the timing and everything about it that actually makes quite a bit of sense. I, I, I guess I agree with that. Uh, you know, our mutual friend Brent Simmons described WWDC uh, with Swift UI as as the uh, the end of the next era at Apple. You know, in terms of the software, and you know that is the one thing. You know, Johnny was already at Apple when when the as I call it the next reunification happened, and you know Steve Jobs has had said several times that you know one of the very pleasant surprises when he came back to Apple after the next acquisition slash anti-acquisition, whatever you want to Reverse acquisition, right. That's why I call it the reunification. It's like when you look at what Next did, and it it wasn't that long. That's the thing is that Next, I think, only started in like 1988. And by 1997, they'd been acquired, you know, at the end of, very end of 1996, they were acquired by Apple. So it, it it's pretty wild, right? Like it, the the current era right. of Apple, the dominant era of Apple is like twice as long as <laughs> as like the non-Steve Jobs era of Apple. Right. It's exactly. It is kind of wild when you think about it, but because I was young and the computer industry was young and there were new platforms coming every few years, you know, you had the BOS and you know, you had the Silicon Graphics and you had Sun and and all these other companies and there were a bunch of, you know, much more competition just be, and I think that's typical, you know, we, we, we don't have to go off in the weeds on this, but it's typical for an industry in the early years to have more competition and more new upstarts and then things settle in and there's a, a one or two dominant players. Um, you know, the software side wasn't Johnny and you, you know, and then the software side of modern Apple all came from the next acquisition, but I think you're right that that swift ui is the first thing that they've done since then that is uh new you know it's 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 not based on the uh, next application frameworks right right because because swift is like a programming language right that's right. a fairly sort of generic thing like swift right. ui oh there it goes i think they're finished swift ui is like that's getting like the framework of the, how the operating system actually works and how it actually like shows stuff on the screen and all like it's much more embedded into the os itself as opposed to something like you know a, 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 like a programming language like it, you're getting deeper into what is os 10 itself yeah and it's now something different than it was previously or yeah. mac os i guess i should say uh, but you know, and it, but it's an interesting, you know, inflection point because back then, in the late '90s, when Apple was furiously working to deliver OS X, uh, you know, it was a, you know, I think that it was a late '90s, like seriously, like after after Christmas 1996, like very very late December, when they acquired next i think it was after christmas it was definitely late december so effectively it was 1997 and you know there was that whole period where uh it wasn't like they acquired them and said okay now steve jobs is back and he's in charge there was that whole um 
you know, how I, you know, he, he's just going to be an advisor and, you know, uh, you know, he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And then they, you know, ran Gil Emilio out of the company and, and he, he became, they literally called him the ICEO, right? Interim CEO. Right. It was like the, I, I, it was the, the first I, right? Yeah. The first I wasn't the iMac. It was Steve Jobs. He was the ICEO because he was interim CEO. And he was like, well, I'll take over as CEO until we find the real CEO. And it was quite a while before, you know, they made the announcement that, you know what, uh, uh, this is good. This is going to work. I'm staying, I'm sticking around. I'll, I'll be the CEO. Um, but in that era when, and they, you know, had a ton of work to do to, to turn what they had software wise into what they needed to be Mac OS 10, um, it, it was years. I mean, it was 1997 when they started and, and next was an interesting, very interesting and very impressive technical operating system at the time, but to become what it needed to be, to be Apple's new Macintosh operating system, it really needed a lot more. And it didn't ship until I think 2001. Yep. No, no 2001, it, like looking backwards yeah. is this unbelievably momentous year in, in yeah. Apple yeah. because in, in January, 2001, you had the keynote where Jobs announced the future was they, they had the, the, the hub, mm-hmm. and, or the, the, the digital hub idea, and that the, the thing they were going to focus on as far as the spokes on the hub was going to be music. Yep. And they had iTunes. And this was a, a, huge, trans, a huge switch because only like seven months previously they said they were going to focus on movies. Mm-hmm. And then that, there's that intervening period where they're like, oh, crap, this thing's happening with MP3s and we're totally missing yep. it. And they bought SoundJam and pivoted and did all that. Yep. So that's January. In February, uh, uh, Rubenstein, John Rubenstein goes to goes – to Japan goes yeah. to visit uh, Toshiba. They show him this little hard drive, saying, "We don't know what to do with this." And- right <laughs> at the time, most hard drives, with the small hard drives that you would put in a laptop, I think were two point five inches. Uh, and right. to, he, and this- he he went there for like a regular visit to like, hey, check on the state of the art. And they were like, hey, we've we've made these one point eight inch hard and drives. And we have no idea what to do with them. Right. Because it was like the laptop people were like, Well, we don't need, you know, two point five is fine. You know, like like right. the difference is too slow, it's too small. Yeah, a slower hard drive but that's only this much smaller doesn't make a difference to us if we've already putting it into a laptop form factor. And but Rubenstein, yeah, as as you're pointing out, it was like, hey, maybe there's something else we could make where where this decrease in size would actually make a difference. And and, and this is actually a really important point that I think we, we'll I want to reference further in the podcast to sort of put a stake here. Th- that was February 2001. They shipped the iPod in September of 2001. <laughs> no, uh, so uh, I think it was it, actually October. It, they were going. Well, they to announced ship it, it uh, in September, I think, or w- w- something around. Was it because of nine eleven? Yeah, it was because of nine eleven. They were. I think they were going to ship it, announce it in September, and then nine eleven happened, and they postponed it, and then made. Uh, in my opinion, I've never heard this. I've never confirmed this, but I think that they then made the original iPod announcement a bit lower key than they would have it was it was i was not it was before it was that 2001 is before i was even writing during fireball so i wasn't it wasn't even close to when i would have been invited to a apple media event but i do remember it was held at their uh very small town hall at the old uh infinite loop campus and it, it, it's an interesting thing to watch again you know I, I i think you do the same thing i do is you rewatch some of these old uh apple announcements and in hindsight you you can kind of gain some insights 
it, the original iPod announcement was very low key, and I think I, I think it's just because everyone, the whole world, was just low key after nine eleven. And I, I, you know, not I don't think it was a mistake. Maybe maybe they would have played it that way anyway. But I, I, it's hard to think that it wasn't colored in some way by the general mood of the entire civilization post nine eleven. No, you're right. It was October, but 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 just to make the broader point, that's eight months from yeah. from idea, like not yeah. even like drawings, from right. idea to product. And the other thing, I think that's useful to remember back to this point is Apple was still uh, so much more of a hardware company in this part. Like in this case, they outsourced the operating system, right? Yeah. Like it was yeah. it was built by uh, what is it? A uh, Pix Pixel? I mean, Apple P I X O, right? Pixel. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. not sure how to say it. Um, yeah. Apple supervised it and dealt with it, but I mean, it was kind of like the iMac, like the original iMac. I mean, I know uh, I'm going to get some of your listeners mad, probably including you, but I mean, OS 10 was, <laughs> I called it my day up to today, a decrepit operating system, right? It still had a great sort of user experience. Wait, OS but, 10 or the no, sorry, OS, OS 9. Uh, yeah. yeah cl- oh. Classic, classic Mac, I should yeah. say. Um, and the, you know, the components were terrible. It was slow. It, like, it was a mess. No, well, rel- relative. Term. No, no, it, no, no, no. I meant Macs relative to Intel PCs at that time were, were slow. Yeah. Um, not saying, not yes. saying the operating system itself was slow. The, actually, the operating system was very snappy. Right. Because it was the way very, it was built. It was, was so close to the metal, right? The operating right. system was fast. The hardware was problematic. And, and uh, in that era, you know, I I was I've I've been a nonstop Mac person, Apple person. You know, even going back to the eighties. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's fair. But I think you have to say that the, if there was any argument of slowness, it was result. It was the the Motorola CPUs, not right? No, the that's operating what I'm system. About. Exactly. No, I meant to refer to the operating system right. to to the to the CPU. But the the point is is that like, what's interesting is that era of Apple was and this is why I think it's the most it's the place where I've made the biggest difference and mattered the most is like I've carried Apple through that period yeah. right it was like the 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 iMac sold because it was this gorgeous all-in-one computer that people just wanted it it didn't sell because of its other features it didn't sell because of the operating system it didn't sell because it had a speedy processor right. it it sold because it was yeah. the, it was attractive it was desirable it was a thing that you wanted to have and you wanted to have in your house and that was the first time ever for a computer same thing with with an iPod, I mean, yes, a huge part of the iPod was iTunes and the fact that you could all the complexity was offloaded onto the Mac. You know, certainly a theme for Apple. You know, in the way they've designed their products, but at the same time, like Apple spent its resources and its time on getting the hardware right, right. and and they were willing to outsource sort of the software side of it. And you know, I, I think it's when you think about the arc of of Ives' tenure at Apple. To me, it, you have to go back to this era because it, it's where he like you, he second only to Steve Jobs. He saved the company because he's it, it, getting those products out, making products that people wanted, despite the fact they're missing so many important pieces. That's what gave Apple the the money, gave them the resources, gave them the the motivation, not the motivation, the uh, the momentum for sort of everything that followed and to take nothing away from his designs around the, you know, the iPhone or, or the iPad or any of those sorts of things. But all those, like th- that was a train that was sort of going down the tracks at that point. And Johnny Ive was very much the person that sort of got that train moving in the first place. You know, and it's an interesting, you know, it's in the, in the statement Apple put forth yesterday to announce this, uh, they, you know, Tim Cook's quote, you know, praising uh, Johnny Ive, uh, specifically called out the original iMac 
Um, and, you know, I think for good reason. And I think you're right. And, and part of it, timing-wise, like I said, was that on the software side, Jobs and his, his team from Next had a, a, at least four or five years of work to get Mac OS X out. Um, and, you know, it, it officially shipped in 2001. But I, did you ever, did you use it back then? I don't know. Did you even try it in, you no. know, like the original 10.0? It, it, you know, it was Mac, pretty rough. It was extremely rough. I mean, it really, really rough. And serious Mac users who had work to do didn't use it. I mean, it was years. And, you know, somebody was another podcast. I forget where somebody was uh, talking recently. Oh, it was on <laughs> it was on my podcast. It was <laughs> it was uh Jaws's story about the uh the funeral that they held on stage for Mac, classic Mac OS 9. Yep. Uh you know, <laughs> the great story he told at the beginning of my live show. Uh and and John Moltz's <laughs> crazy apple rumors story that it, after it had been had a funeral that it had been resuscitated and brought back to life and how uh, everybody, including Steve Jobs at Apple, had greatly enjoyed, enjoyed the story. Um, but that was like 2004 when they were, it was like three years after it shipped and they're still holding Macworld Expos where Steve Jobs is holding a, a you know, a tongue-in-cheek funeral for Mac OS 9. Uh which was a very funny way of effectively saying, "Hey, you know this new this new one. We know that a lot of you have been holding out, but this new one is actually you. Know, it is the future. The, this the old OS has no future, and it's good now. It's good enough. It, it so, you know, that was seven years after the acquisition before they they held the event where they were like, "Hey, classic Mac OS is dead." It was a very long time to get Mac OS ten to where it needed to be to be like fast enough and snappy enough and robust enough to say this, this is the Apple Mac operating system. In the meantime, you know, like you said, 1998 was only like a year after jobs came back and they shipped the iMac and it was a sensation. I mean, it's, there's no other way to describe it. It was an absolute sensation and it was purely based on design right it like you said it wasn't a, it wasn't like a world beating processor it wasn't you know the g3 whatever yeah it was the g3 yeah 166 megahertz or something like that 100 and something uh wasn't that great compared to the state of the art for the industry uh it was a crt that was just you know uh, just a sort of standard crt display the operating system was, I, in my opinion, you know, we can argue, we shouldn't argue about it here on the show, but because uh, it, it'll take up all of our time. But the Mac operating system still had a great design. Yeah, no, it, it did. We're on the same page. It, right. It's more from a technical, like, right. underpinning perspective. Right. Like, it didn't have protective memory. Exactly. And, didn't have protective sort of memory. And, you know, and by the late 90s, you kind of needed protected memory. You know, you, you did need it. It was outdated. It, it should have been. You know, Apple should have made that transition five to six years earlier, and they didn't through mismanagement. And it was, you know, you can say, well, in hindsight, five, six years isn't that long. But, you know, you, 
you've missed something like that, and all of a sudden you're you're behind the curve. It wasn't a world beating operating system, and it wasn't anything different. It wasn't like the iMac shipped with a d- different looking version of Mac OS than you could get on any other Mac that you could have bought in ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, right? It, it so it wasn't the software, it wasn't the processor. It it just had a regular hard drive. There was n- nothing else really. The only other technical thing I can even vaguely think of that you could say it was kind of remarkable about it was that it switched all of the I.O. to USB. And that was interesting. And it was ahead of the curve, even though USB is an industry standard that eventually, you know, became uh, the standard port on all PCs. The iMac was the first one in the industry that that went to USB, but you know, right. it wasn't and, like, and, no, and no no disk drive built in either. Nobody a was floppy disk drive. Yeah, no floppy. That was the other. Yeah, so that was the other thing. Is it was the only uh, the only disk drive was a, a CD ROM, which at the so at the time we thought it was amazing. Isn't this forward thinking that it doesn't have a floppy? But in hindsight, it's like, <laughs> but it was a big deal that it it had a CDR drive. No, not even a CDR. Just, oh, it, it, you're it could, right. It you're write. right. It could only read. You're right because in, when they did the music thing, they that was part of the mea culpa. We missed this was that people people want to burn CDs, so we're gonna we're gonna yeah. That's when it was only like 2001 or 2002 when they were like we got to put CDRs into everything. But yeah. anyway, it, it was just what it looked like. It was hey, it's all in one. It is this sort of interesting has, has a handle, fascinating. To me, because within two years of the iMac shipping, the whole world of industrial design became obsessed with translucent plastics and largely translucent plastics that were in that same, uh, what was it, what do you pronounce it, Bondi? Bondi Bondi Blue. Bondi Blue. Uh, You know, you could buy like uh, uh, ironing, ironing. Irons, you know, they uh, iron your clothes with. They were the same thing. You could buy like just like a, a, a desk side uh, alarm clock, and and they all looked like the iMac or tried to look like the iMac as much as they could. It was, you know, it it. Well, not just that, but you mentioned how long it took to get sort of OS ten out the door, and so it wasn't just the the original iMac, then also the iPod. Right. Uh, and then the the next iMac actually came out too the the one the the lampshade iMac, uh, and this was in um, 2002. So basically, you know, I've and the industrial design team was was re- again you can't you can't underestimate the degree to which they were carrying Apple and carrying water for Apple for for a good five six seven years, and really you know before then the iPod started when did the when did the iPod go to Windows or right? iTunes go to Windows 2004 I think yeah and so 2004 like is kind of like a switchover point 2003 where, 2004 somewhere right there where where the the importance of the software kind of came back up to the the level of the importance of the hardware and but but before that like it was like it was pretty rough like it was, it was a hardware driven company to a far greater extent than than they are you know have any any time since then and. Uh, and, and again, the, and the other thing with the with the iMac is, I mean, it's hard to appreciate for maybe young people out there. Like it was really out of left field. Like it, no, like no one saw anything like that coming. Like they, I remember I used to always read the comics, and they were like it was like in in comics, like the Sunday comics and stuff like that. I remember there being like, like it was. 
it was a cultural event. Like yeah. it, it, it was so unlike anything that came before. And it's fascinating because it, it's something that that it's it's still completely recognizable. And at the same time, it's so obviously the way that. A, a computer, sort of a consumer cons- computer, sort of ought to have been made. I mean, and then oh, the other thing uh, is in that same time period, they also did the Power Book. The Power Book was in nineteen was in two thousand one, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, which again a brilliant uh, industrial design that that you know basically set the design language for Apple's laptops all the way through today. In many You're, respects, are you talking specifically about the? Uh... The titanium G4 yeah, China. That's yeah. right. That's right. So they had quote unquote power books before that. There were power books in the late nineties, but the one that that set the mold for the to to this day, the modern laptop design was the titanium G4 power book. That's right, and then the uh, and then the iBook uh, was in uh, the early two thousands. Plastic, but again, just a very striking sort of design. It also got the colors going on, and uh, and I don't like when it comes to consumer electronics. Like basically, the most valuable sort of segment there there is on Earth. Like that, it was an unbelievable sort of seven to eight year stretch that really like set forth the design language for basically everyone that we're still using today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it's funny too because you would tend to think hardware. Has a longer time frame than software, and in at that time though, you know, and and part of what made it possible for them to do it so fast was that they, it wasn't like they invented a new CPU or switched to a new CPU or or went right. Some, Things were much more modular then. Yeah, much more modular, and they just used a standard, you know, I guess Sony CRT. Uh, it, Technically, you know, and I think it drove some people who, who, you know, uh, I don't want to say Apple haters, but you know what I mean, Apple haters. You know, it drove <laughs> it drove them nuts that there was nothing technically innovative about it. It it, it made some people all the rave reviews that the that the iMac got drove some people nuts because they were like, wait, this is still the same piece of crap Mac that they sold before. It just has a clear Pretty blue case. case. Yep. No, but that's why it's so important, though. Right. Like to me, that's why it is. I still think it's the most important product that that I've created because the, the what hap- was happening in that period from a sort of big picture meta level was, you know, the reason why Apple struggled in the '80s and the '90s is that the computer market was an enterprise market, and Apple was fundamentally a consumer company. And if you want to back up, the reason why Apple succeeded in the 2000s and the and and the 2010s and Microsoft struggled is because the the, the PC market became a consumer market and the enterprise market became much less important. And if you think about it, the fundamental nature of the two companies actually didn't change. It's just that the market around them changed. Yeah. But but a key sort of like pivot point in there was this product, which again, it was the first computer you wanted f- because you, like it wasn't just a technical putting, you know, a spreadsheet feeds and speeds sort of calculation. Like there was, it, it aroused something else in you that, yes, you, it's hard to articulate. It's hard to put on a spreadsheet that drives sort of nerds up the wall because they look at the numbers and say it doesn't make any sense. But just because there isn't a number for that feeling or that right. desire doesn't mean it's not real. And that feeling, that desire, like that is the intersection of, of you know, liberal arts and technology that yep. Steve Jobs talks about. That, that's exactly what he's referring to. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's so many examples. It, it, the computer industry, <clears throat> Apple had always sort of been on that spectrum. It's not like, it's not like the 
iMac was unappley or or I, I'm not quite sure how to no, put no, it. No, I, I'm with you. No, that is my point. Like Apple but was a consumer company it, all the way through, but this sort of like took it to to 100. Yeah, and it was sort of like it. It was like instead of feeling like oh, this is a total shift and a new direction for the company. It was like this is what Apple should have been doing for the last 10 years, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. And, and the original Mac from 1984 had that sort of effect, you know. That yep. it was. I this... was just thinking about that. Like, like that's its true right. forebear, right? Like, it, it, right. The, the Mac started out being this this sort of thing you wanted to put on a desk, and you feel you see it and feel happy. And then it sort of devolved into well, there's you know, it took time, but by the mid 90s, it's just a bunch of beige yeah. boxes like everybody else. And yeah. this was a return to what the Mac was supposed to be all along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I feel like everybody who got it. I had that same feeling, you know, and it, it's, you know, you, and, and you can't measure it. You can't put a number on it. It's not about specs. It really is the antithesis of that. And there's so many things in the quote unquote liberal arts that are like that. Like what makes a movie a great movie as opposed to a shitty movie? And, you know, you can't measure it. You can't like run run the movie through a b test a movie you or, or put it through an algorithm and figure out you know have a piece of software say well this is uh, absolutely a classic piece of art or this one is a complete turd you can't measure a novel algorithmically right you can't you know it could be just as well printed with the same quality of paper it could come right out of the same uh uh printing press as a a great novel and a piece of crap, you know, uh, turd novel. You, right. You, you, you just have to know it. You, it's something that you need to be a human being and, and you just feel it, you know, and the iMac definitely had that. And, and it was absolutely, and everybody, uh, everybody credits Johnny Ive for that. I, I think it's one of the things that's interesting and it stems right from that 1998 era is that, one of the things about Steve Jobs, and it's it's and it's hard to separate this as we do like a retrospective on Johnny Ive's time at Apple. It's you, you can't really separate his collaboration with Steve Jobs. But one of the things about Steve Jobs that goes all the way back to the very earliest days, literally like when it was just him and Wozniak, and he <laughs> like shortchanged him on a check from Atari <laughs> uh, for a video game, was that Steve Jobs. Love him or hate him, whatever you think about him, he tended to want to take a lot of the credit himself. I mean, it was just his nature. Uh, and I think it's very telling. You know, and, and it, it was Steve Jobs who, in his return to Apple, instituted a policy that, in hindsight, like if you only have been following Apple since sometime in the 2000s, it, it, this, would, this will seem crazy. But prior to that, Apple gave an entire a, a very large amount of credit to the engineers and designers who worked on things the about boxes for the operating system and for individual apps from apple would list the people who worked on them and created them by name and and as a nerd who followed this stuff these you know you you saw these names and and you know you were like wow these these are this guy is great look at this guy he's worked on the finder for 5 years uh or he's the only guy who's who's made the entire file system you know for for the macintosh uh it was jobs who came back 
and instituted this policy of, hey, we're not going to put anybody's names in these about boxes and ostensibly for the reason that uh, he thought that they were getting, you know, anti-poaching, which I think is, it's, I've, I've argued this like in public talks over the years publicly is, seems like nonsense. Like it's, it's not like uh, because they, t- they stopped putting engineer and designer names in about boxes that uh, recruiters in Silicon Valley didn't know how to get in contact with talented people at Apple to see if they would leave for another company. You know, it's, right. Jo- that, jobs cut backroom deals to deals. It's nonsense. Uh, right. But, job, jobs cut backroom deals to deal with poaching. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that was the anti poaching thing. Like he was, he was concerned with poaching, but I don't think the about box thing. Yeah, he took a much more direct it. approach to dealing with it. <laughs> that was also highly illegal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, d- like from from the iMac onward, there was never any lack of credit for Johnny Ive. You know, it, it his you know the esteem that Steve Jobs held him in is clearly uh, of the ho- absolute highest regard. That this is somebody who deserves full named credit uh, as as an essential Apple employee who who made this thing or or spearheaded this thing, spearheaded the team that made this thing. Yeah, it, it, no, it's an it's an excellent point, and it's deserved. I mean, if there there is one guy that sort of deserves that sort of credit, it is it is Ive. And you know, the other thing that's interesting, I'm curious your thoughts about this. It's it's striking to go back and look at those iMacs and that you know that translucent plastic, and they're also colorful. And you had the iBooks that were multicolored, uh, sort of following the same sort of aesthetic. And think about where Apple's hardware has sort of evolved to, where it's a very yes. There's these sort of like the secondary iPhone models that have colors, but the, the you know the flagship models for a long time have been very sort of austere and 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 cold almost. And it's it's interesting to uh, like why how is it that Apple and it took time like Apple sort of devolved in that direction over over a while, but it, you know um, maybe that's just the way that yeah, I think there's something. I, I, I think there was something too like the, the hardware just diminished in importance over time. It's not that having great computers didn't matter, but you think about something like the iPhone and the iPad where the screen and what you were doing and directly touching mattered so much more. It was sort of appropriate that the hardware sort of fade away into the background. And, and I think that it's interesting to think about Ive's career sort of in that context, starting with the iMac where, which was f- hardware first carrying the company because of the hardware bright color, colorful, what caught your eye, and then to see that sort of fade as everything else that took time sort of came to the surface. Yeah, that is a absolute great topic. Uh, I'm going to put a fork in it and come back to it after I tell you about our first sponsor. <laughs> Let me tell you about our friends at uh, Casper. I love this company. Casper makes products for sleeping. Uh, they've got mattresses. They've got sheets, pillows, that sort of thing. Uh, They're designed by humans for humans. And look, you spend an entire third of your life sleeping. So you should be as comfortable as possible when you do. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep service that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. They've got the original Casper mattress. I sleep on one every night. That's, That's what I've got. I love it. Super comfortable. Uh, it's got, uh, multiple forms of supportive foam for a quality sleep surface, right amount of sink and bounce 
it's really comfortable. It just feels luxurious, very comfortable. I love it. Uh, and it's a very breathable design. Helps you sleep cool, regulate your body temperature throughout the night. Uh, they also now offer four other mattresses. The Wave, the Essential, the Hybrid Casper, and the Hybrid Wave. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. The Essential has a streamlined design at a lower price, so it won't keep you up at night worrying about how much you spend on it. The Hybrids combine the pressure relief of the award-winning foam with durable yet gentle springs. That's the new thing that they've got. They never they've their previous ones from the last few years have all been foam only. Now with the hybrids, they've got combination foam and springs. They offer a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets to ensure an overall better sleep experience. And they're all designed, developed, and assembled right here in the USA. Uh, look, they sell premium, premium products, premium mattresses. Everything they sell is high quality, and they sell it at a lower price than you would think because they cut out the middlemen, they, and they sell directly to you. They make it. They design it. They ship it right to you. There is no middleman. There's no retail, uh, and they've got hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied. You get a mattress. You try it out. You get like 100 days. And uh, it's a risk-free, they call it a sleep-on-it trial, up to 100 days. And you say, you know what? I don't like it. I don't like this mattress for whatever reason. They'll take it back, give you all your money back, no questions asked. That's how confident they are in your satisfaction with their Casper products. Here's the deal for you. 50 bucks towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash talk show and using the code talk show. No the, just talk show at checkout. That's casper.com slash talk show, and uh, you'll save 50 bucks on select mattresses. Terms and conditions do apply. Uh, ben, you back? I am back. Yeah, I, I do think that if what you brought before the break there is an interesting point where the early Johnny Ive era, you know, and, and, and it's so Funny and curious and interesting that I've and his industrial design team were already there at Apple when Steve Jobs got there. And and it's like, what the, you know, what the hell was the previous management doing with this team? You know, they they somehow had the sense to hire. I, I have no idea how he lasted for, I think it was, he, it was there for five years, I think, yeah. before Jobs got there. It's, it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> So talented, so ambitious, and yet the products the company was shipping had no, you know, uh, no, no real interest. I mean, I guess the Newton stuff. Maybe I don't know if you even worked on the Newton stuff. The Newton stuff was at least original, but the Macintosh hardware of the time was just it. It was just the best looking beige box. <laughs> it wasn't. Yep. It wasn't that interesting. Then the iMac ushers in this era of, uh, for lack of a better word, trendiness, you know, and, and stuff changed very quickly. And, you know, in hindsight, that that translucent plastic, whether it was the Bondi blue or you went, remember when they first uh, expanded from that and they switched to like five colors? 
Yeah, um, can remember the advertisements. Um, I think they called them by fruit, right? It was like strawberry, lime, grape. Uh, Which is hilarious to think about in retrospect. Uh, strawberry, lime, grape. What else was there? Was there a lemon, blueberry? You know, they, they had like a new blue, like a different shade of blue. All of it looks very trendy, and and it's like looking at old episodes of like Seinfeld or Friends or whatever shows were on in the late '90s, and you see, you know, the way that hairstyles were different and clothing styles were different, and for for whatever reason, in the '90s, we we all just bought clothes that were way too big. Everybody brought. <laughs> Had like sweaters that you you just buy clothes that were like two sizes too big for you, and you look at the TV shows and you see people dressed like that, and you're like, why? Why is everybody wearing sweaters that are too big? And the same way you look at at those you know things and you think, why? Why would you make a computer out of clear plastic? It it seems very trendy. At the time, it was a sensation, uh, but then they did move to uh, uh, design languages for various products that sort of have a timelessness, right? And, and I think that that titanium G4 PowerBook really was the start of that. Uh, you know, it, titanium, there were problems with yeah, it. Yeah, the, t- the titanium wasn't a good idea, but the, the, uh, the, 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 the language and the color sort of right. were exactly what you, you still, you still see today. Right. Titanium was a problem. It, 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 it didn't do well with some people's like the the sweat and oil on your hands you know it would it 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 corroded on the palm rests for some people um but the basic look of it though is a lot like a modern macbook and the idea of hey let's use a different material than plastic was a fundamentally great idea right and now everybody, the whole the whole world's moved to making stuff out of aluminum. Yeah, no, everything was plastic. All laptops were plastic back then. I, everything. I, 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 I can remember the last time I've seen a plastic notebook now. So right, because everything's made out of aluminum now. Yeah, you know? carbon fiber or something right. along those lines. Yeah. yeah. It's all very interesting. And, and it, it, it part of what made and makes, you know, and probably will make, you know, for years to come, depending on, you know, seeing what he works on. Johnny Ive, so interesting, is uh, is truly, truly, deeply, deeply interested and knowledgeable in materials and what they look like, how you can make them, how they're formed, what their their uh, uh, rigidity is, um, and, and that just wasn't part of the PC industry at the time. Everything was just a piece of crap made out of plastic. The end, the other thing that's interesting too is sort of the the speed of iteration then because uh, the mm. the iPod was in two thousand and one and you know they were iterating on that quite quickly and then I mean at the time when we were experiencing it it didn't feel like that that fast but if you go back like the iPod yeah. era era was only like six years yeah. right yeah and uh, and they'd come up with new iPods every year and then the mini came out and it seemed like a huge deal that was what two thousand five like it, it yeah it, it's so it's the same thing you talked about the Jobs era Apple where it actually it wasn't that long that he was gone. But at the time, it felt like it was forever, yep. and it was the same thing in the whole iPod era. Like, yeah. like it was, it, it was actually quite short and and like half as long as the as the iPhone era has been. Yeah, that's very true. That the um, the iPod era was very short, but it seemed long at the time. I I very specifically remembered that it it 
it coincided with Apple's foray into opening its own retail stores, which is one of the great claim chowder stories of all time because of how many people, when they first said, hey, we're going to make our own stores, were like, hey, if if Gateway can't pull it off, there's no way Apple can. Yeah, it's amazing because I didn't. I forgot about that. That was two thousand and one too. Yeah. So two thousand and one, Apple yep. watched iTunes. Yeah. Watched the watched the the Titanium PowerBook. Mm-hmm. Watched the Apple Retail Store. Watched the iPod and watched uh, OS ten, like the consumer version of OS ten. Yeah. Like it, it is the like the most <laughs> unbelievable year that a computer company will ever have. I mean, and again, not just the the amount of and quality of the products, but sort of the long run impact of all those products is just astronomical. It it was like, but Apple's like foray into retail was treated by the business press as like Apple has decided to to totally uh, lost their minds. Yeah, but they've decided to put their corporate uh, bank balance on uh, on red on a roulette table. You know what I mean? It was like this is. Oh no, no, they didn't give them that. They didn't give them that many chances. No, it's yeah, like they picked one of the numbers. Yeah, thirty-seven. They did, right. They put exactly. it all on thirty-two. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, but you know, and you know that Johnny Ive has been instrumental in that too, right? I mean, like the the tables at the Apple stores are all you know custom designed by Johnny's design team, uh, and you know Steve Jobs famously took an enormous interest in every single aspect of those stores, you know, uh, importing certain stone for the floors from a a quarry in one town in Italy, Uh, all sorts of stuff like that, details like that. But it's, you know, part of this uh, just sort of design-centric mentality that really took hold at Apple, you know. And again... While Jobs was gone, it's not like design didn't matter at Apple, but it, it, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't surface in every single thing they did in the way that it did after he got there. Yep, no, absolutely. And the, I mean, so to go back to the iPods then. So they're coming out with iPods every year, and then the the sort of the iPhone comes along, and the you know it's it's interesting they it's in retro like. You're seeing this dramatic increase in complexity. I think that's probably a big reason why the iPhone sort of iteration speed was slower as far as industrial yeah. design because they they did the iPhone one, then the iPhone three G, and then the three GS was the same case, and they right. they followed the S sort of yeah. you know versioning ever since. And uh, I, I again, I, I'm just very struck. I've been thinking about this all morning. I, I had to wake up at three to write my daily update. Uh, you were right last night. Like to me, this arc of Johnny Ive in in conjunction with what was happening at Apple is so fascinating. And this is another one where the, you, you talked a few minutes ago, they could churn out sort of the, the iMac quickly because it's using all sort of standard parts. And you think about it, it's a relatively large case and it can fit a lot of stuff in there very easily. Over time, the complexity and sort of miniaturization of Apple's products is also sort of going in this, in this same direction where you're going from the iMac to the iPod and the iPod looking back was a very sort of simple device, but it was, 
more challenging from a sort of manufacturing and production standpoint than an iMac would have been. Right. And then and then you go from the the iPod to the iPod Mini or the iPod Nano, and again you, the the challenges are sort of increasing in that regard. The iPhone takes that to a whole another level because now you have to deal with antennas, you have to deal with you know cell reception, all those sorts of things that go into that. And you know this is sort of going to weed, I think, big picture to the questions about what comes after Johnny Ive, but the this the the challenge is you like you're not going to turn out an iPhone. It's not going to go from idea to out the door in eight months anymore. Like no. it's just not possible anymore no. because the level of complexity has increased so much. Just as the importance of this of software and services has increased so much. And again, I think this is where Johnny Ive, like he was, he was of outsized importance early on, and became more important as a sort of collaborative part of something much more complex later on and it's sort of a natural transition that happened as technology advanced it's i i the miniaturization thing is is an interesting angle and just compare like you brought up uh you know just how how quickly the ipod changed from the original white thick sort of deck of cards size one in 2001 with a black and white screen to the mini which was a sensation to the nano which was a, a, a true sensation that's where it switched from a small tiny spinning hard drive to uh, ssd storage which allowed them to make it way smaller even though it, it was already like by far and away the best-selling mp3 player on the planet and they just threw it away and said, we're going to switch to something much thinner and, and using more expensive storage uh, just because we think this is the future. And of course, in hindsight, uh, you know, selling these things with spinning hard disks seems archaic, right? It, it was crazy, but it was, it's just not the sort of thing typical companies do, but it all happened in five or six years. And now just compare and contrast with Apple watch, which has gotten, at a technical level, very much better since it debuted. It is way faster. If you buy a, a what's the current one, Series Four? If you buy the current Apple Watch, it is way faster than the original Apple Watch. It has much, much longer battery life. Easily gets you entirely through a day, no matter what you're doing with it, uh, how much you're using it, how much you know fitness monitoring you're doing. You can easily get through a day, whereas the original Apple Watch really struggled to get through a day on a, on a single charge so much faster. But fundamentally, like if you just saw somebody walking by you on the sidewalk, would you have any idea which Apple watch they're wearing? You know, the one, the, the five-year-old one, the two-year-old one, the three-year-old one, one that they just bought yesterday. I, you wouldn't be able to tell it's hasn't really changed much from a, um, uh, industrial design perspective. Industrial design perspective. Just yeah. because it started, it started at such a, it's already as small as it could possibly be state. Yeah. And I think I really started to feel this and notice this uh, when it came to the iPad. And um, I, there was a, in 2013, I wrote about, I was, I was concerned about the iPad that Apple sort of lost 
vision of what the iPad was supposed to be. It, it remains, in my opinion, where Apple misses Steve Jobs the most or the product that misses Steve Jobs the most in many respects. But uh, we don't need to get into that here. But but, the, <laughs> but, but I, I went back to uh, I went back to watch the original iPad introduction then, and I actually quoted this in my article today because what was so interesting about the introduction was you had a Johnny Ive product video, but Johnny Ive actually barely talked in the video. The vast majority of the video was Scott Forstall speaking, and and it, if you go back to sort of the actual words that Johnny Ive said, it's funny because Johnny Ive actually explained why he wasn't talking, uh, and. and so I'm going to actually quote what he says. He says, um, uh, he said, the face of the product is pretty much defined by a single piece of multi-touch glass, and that's it. There's no pointing device. There isn't even a single orientation. There's no up. There's no down. There's no right way of holding it. I don't have to change myself to change the product. It fits me. And it kind of struck me when I went back to read that. Like, that was in some respects the end of the, like, the Johnny Ive driving force era, right? Like, the, yes, he, he designed the iPad and it came out, but there, there was something fundamentally different about that device where, yes, being thin, being light, being something that felt good in your hands was important. And the current iPads right now, I think, is the best industrial design that Apple's ever done. They're just absolutely incredible. But it ceased to be the absolute driving force for why this product mattered, why it was important to you, why it was something you wanted to use in a very sort of stark difference from the, go back to the iMac, for example, like it switched to this world where the, the, the importance of the software started to overtake the importance of the hardware. And you would have discussions. Would you rather have a ThinkPad with OS 10 or would you rather have, you know, a, a MacBook Pro with Windows? And, and like th that, the importance of which mattered sort of flipped over time. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because in retrospect, that that was about the time that Steve, <laughs> whatever happened to Scott Forstall happened. Uh, there was a striking anecdote in the information. I'm not sure if you read it yet, where they they <laughs> they had this sort of chilling anecdote of Scott Forstall's team meeting and Johnny Ive attending, and they're like, "Where's Scott?" And Johnny's like, "He's not attending, or he, he, Scott won't be here anymore." <laughs> but um, but but it was like for 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 him to matter as a designer to Apple in some respects necessitated taking over software as he did when Forstall left, just because software was becoming so much more important than the hardware. That is, uh, that should be the topic for the second half of the show is, is the, the sort of post Steve Jobs, uh, Johnny Ive era. Uh, yeah. I'd say, oh yeah. Post, post, and, Forstall, and I, post jobs. Yeah. I, and I do think you're right. I think you're making a very keen point that I don't think that he, I think whatever problems personality-wise I've had with Forstall, and, and again, Apple is so insular, and people, even when they leave the company, tend not to talk about it. We don't know that much, you know, and, and I have sources, and I'm a little bit juiced into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, but uh, we just don't know much, but I don't think. Uh, in fact, I would wager on it that it wasn't a situation where simplistically Johnny Ive saw that software was the defining feature of these products now that their most important products were just pieces of glass with, with an interface on them, you know, the iPhone and the iPad. Uh, and therefore thought, I need to take control of this because if I don't have control of the software, what am I controlling? 
right? I'm just controlling what, what, what the volume buttons look like on the side of an iPad. I don't think it was that. I, I really think that they did have a serious conflict. I think that, you know, I, there were stories that he wouldn't take meetings with. He wouldn't go to, he, Johnny wouldn't go to meetings. I think, and, and Bob Mansfield, I think had the same policy that he just, he just wouldn't go to a meeting with Scott Forstall, uh, which is, you know, not a good situation to have. <laughs> Seems unhealthy. It does not seem healthy. No, I agree with you. I don't, I'm not saying that it was intentional, but right. the effect was that Ives, realm of influence had right. diminished by virtue of the way the products evolved. Right. And then him taking over software sort of, w w it was very much a new era. It was a new yeah. era for him personally, and it dramatically increased sort of his influence on Apple for, for yeah. that period. Um, yeah, totally. I, I also think, and I want to, I want to say this while it's still on my mind. Uh, I know we're skipping around years now, quite a bit but it wouldn't be the talk show if we weren't <laughs> skipping around randomly uh or i made the point a couple minutes ago that if you just look at the apple watch hardware you really can't tell the, the series zero from the series one to the series two i mean a series four has a slightly different uh profile I, it's almost not even a different form factor it's just sort of a a closer to your wrist profile uh it is to me a nicer looking round rectangle <laughs> but it is still like so it's, it's still a black rectangle on your wrist and it you really have to you, you still can't spot the difference just walking by somebody the one thing though that you can definitely spot just at a glance when you see oh she's wearing an apple watch the one thing that you definitely can notice are the the watch bands and, you know, and they Apple, you know, and part of it is, you know, they, they make money selling these bands. And um, so they do it just, just for the purely financial reason of, hey, let's, you know, every six months we're going to come out with a new, you know, every fall and every spring we're going to refresh the Apple watch bands that you can buy. Um, and, you know, and, and it's like any kind of fashion type thing, you know, any kind of clothing and Apple definitely recruited a lot of people from the fashion industry when they got into the watch uh, business, and, it, and they definitely work that way. You know, they work the way that the the same way that new clothing lines come out every fall and spring. But I think that uh, I, I know I I know for a fact that one of the things that Johnny Ive was most interested in with the watch was designing the bands and straps. Which sounds a little uh, not petty, but it, it it gets back to that argument with the original iMac, where the appeal had nothing to do with the technical specs, right? Like the idea that Apple's chief design officer was spent spent an inordinate amount of time obsessing over an array of watch bands for what is ostensibly a tech product. Doesn't sound like the way a tech, a computer company should work, but it's absolutely part of a huge part to me of the appeal of Apple Watch as a product line, and I absolutely think it's a huge part of what, uh, what drove Johnny Ives' interest in Apple Watch as a product. Yeah, and there's there's something there's a, there's a fundamental trade off that comes from working for a company like Apple, which is 
the designs that you make and the decisions that you, and all those sort of things, you get unlimited resources and like the work that you do lands in the hands of hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. So like the, 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 the resources and the impact are absolutely massive, yeah. but there are just a massive number of constraints that come with that. You're constrained by the technology. You're constrained by having to meet a price point. You're constrained by all, like all these working in a big bureaucracy and having to deal with the Scott Forstalls of the world. Like there's all these constraints that come with it. And for it always sort of surprised me in some respect that I've lasted as long as he did, mm. because if you're sort of like a designer and you just have the, the need to create and the desire to do lots of things, there's no surprise he would be designing Christmas trees or designing chairs or whatever right. sort of side products he would do, because how can you <laughs> how can you design so few things for such a long time when right. you know it, it, it's it's kind of a, a very stifling place to be, and you do it because of the impact, and you do it because of the resources, and you do it because you love your team, and you and you care about the people you work with, and you do it because of Steve Jobs and all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, like you know, honestly, if you look at it from that perspective, it's almost surprising he lasted as long as he did. And hell yeah, make some watch fans. Like yeah. you know, it's it, it's it's fun. It's it's fun in a way that designing the actual case of the watch or designing the next version of the iPhone just will could never could never be yeah uh, let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor and I'm gonna go and then and then I'm going to go into a a humble brag anecdote uh, so put a pin yeah, I get one you you get one <laughs> uh, Express VPN look maybe you oh. think no one wants to steal your data maybe you think hackers aren't looking at your data, looking at your network traffic. Uh, if you use public Wi-Fi, something like that, you might be. It's really, it's, public Wi-Fi is really not not very safe at all. And, and I'm not saying that just simply because ExpressVPN is sponsoring the show. It's, it's just sort of uh, an inherently dangerous, uh, risky sort of thing to do. You can use a VPN and connect and have all of your network data encrypted by top flight encryption. Uh, but you need to trust the people who are making your VPN. ExpressVPN is uh, award-winning. It is highly rated. And it secures and anonymizes your internet browsing all the time on your, on your phone. They have easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet. Super easy to set up. You might be thinking, well, wait, a VPN sounds like something you have to be like a network expert to set up, create, and use. No, you just install their app, hit one button. There you go. One click, one tap, maybe on your phone instead of a click, uh, and it's on, and that's it. And it lets you safely surf on any public Wi-Fi uh, without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. And it costs less than $7 a month to use. It's the number one rated VPN service by Tech Radar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you sign up, start using it, you don't like it, you have a whole month, you can just cancel it, you don't get charged a dime. Uh, protect your online activity today by signing up, and you get three months free by going to expressvpn.com slash TTS, TTS for the talk show. So go to expressvpn.com slash TTS, and you get three months free when you sign up for a one-year package. Go there to learn more. 
Um, so when the original Apple Watch was announced, uh, I think it was a September event. I don't know if that was, or was it October? I guess they wouldn't have announced it at the same event as the iPhone. Yeah, it was a separate event. No, no, it was the same event as the iPhone. Oh, was it? It was interesting because it was the, the same event they announced the iPhone 6, which ended up being this massively important product, and Apple paid barely any attention to it <laughs> sure, at all. Right. It was, uh... <laughs> yeah, I guess it was the same event. Uh... It was at the San Jose, uh, um, the, the theater there, in San, or not, the convention center. Uh, or, no, no, it was. It wasn't the convention center. It was some sort of. It was. Well, they only had one event there ever before previously, and they put up that huge tent that was to try out all the Apple watches and all that sort of thing. They had all these celebrities coming in. Yeah, it, it, at De Anza College or something in Cupertino. That's, right. yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Right. It wasn't the event that was at the California Theater in San Jose. That was that was a different one. Uh, that because that's where I have my live show now at WWDC. No, it was at De Anza College. Uh, which I think is closing or something, or the at least the the Flint Center. I think it's called. That's right. That's right. Uh, but yeah, they made a giant. Uh, they they literally created an entire building, uh, temporary pop up building, <laughs> to have all of the uh, you know they yeah and they, they had celebrities there. I remember I was across the table, looking at these watches from uh, Gwen Stefani, and I was like. <laughs> How is this possible? Why am I yeah. here? Why am I here uh, across a table of Apple Watches from Gwen Stefani? This does, Speaking of the late 90s. It just doesn't seem, this didn't seem like a place where I would end up being. Um, but after that event, uh, I had a briefing and they didn't say, you know, Apple's very, even when you're, you know, you have like a press briefing, they don't tell you, they still don't, they don't tell me at least who the briefings are with they'll just say hey we have a we have a, a briefing scheduled for you at, uh 115 does that work and i'll be you know i what am i doing i i keep my whole day out, you know available after these events so i'm like yeah no matter what time they tell me i'm like yeah but they always ask so they're very very polite and you know say like would 115 work for you does 130 work uh but they don't tell you who who it's with or what it's about but uh the day that they announced the Apple Watch, I had a one-on-one half-hour briefing with Johnny Ive. Uh, and I, I don't think it was the first time I had spoken with him. I had a few others. Uh, some of them I, I think I still shouldn't talk about because they were off the record. Um, but the one with the watch was great. It was so interesting. I had a full half-hour, just me and Johnny Ive in a room with all of the prototype Apple watches that were still not going to ship for six or seven months. Uh, but we spent the whole half hour talking about watch bands. <laughs> and the other thing we talked about, the only other thing we talked about was the packaging for the edition model. <laughs> you know, the $20,000 gold. Yep gold one which every you know i think we have to talk about that watch because i do i do think that the twenty thousand dollar gold <gasps> apple watch edition is you it's not important to apple's history but i think it's essential to understanding johnny ive and his role at the company 
But we didn't even talk about the watches. We didn't talk about the gold. I mean, they were there, and we, you know, he sort of like, you know, it was like, ah, oh, look at this. This is nice. And uh, but for the most part, we just talked about the bands, and we talked about the box that the edition one came in. Actually, we talked about all the boxes, but the edition one in particular really did have an extraordinary box and package. It, it was really nice. But then we just spent half an hour talking about the way watch bands clasp and close and the different, you know, different ways that you can do things. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I had met him before. It is, definitely wasn't the first time I met him. And he knows that he knew that I was, a, you know, like a watch fan. Uh, and I knew that he was. I'd, I'd seen that he had like, uh, you know, like uh, Automir Piquet. I forget how you pronounce that brand. Uh, before Apple Watch came out, he always had like a very nice, some very nice watches. But we talked about like the ways that the clasps on like ro- classic like stainless steel Rolexes and uh, you know thirty thousand dollar <laughs> Swiss watches had sort of antiquated, janky closures. And it's like, look at how nice this is. And the f- they really did. And I remember talking to uh, Ben Clymer who is the founder of Hodinkee. I know you know Hodinkee. Yep. H-O-D-I-N-K-E-E. Uh, Hodinkee is a, for those of you who don't know, is a, it's a great website devoted to watches. Uh, and that's all, pretty much all they write about is just what the watches and the watch industry and high-end watches. Uh, I remember talking to Ben Clymer about it. And Ben Clymer, you know, because he was a total, he's a true watch guy, and he's coming from the world of mechanical and automatic watches. Uh, his initial take, the day, the day that they announced all this stuff, and we had the hand, after the hands-on area, um, he was just like blown away by the quality of Apple's watch straps and bands. He was like, you know, they've really raised, they've they've raised the stakes here, and sort of uh, sent like a lobbed like a grenade over to Switzerland and told, you know, the entire watch industry, get your shit together. You know, you guys have been sitting on your laurels for decades on watch straps. That That's what Johnny Ive and I talked to. We didn't talk about health stuff. We didn't talk about this interface. We didn't talk about, we, we talked about nothing but watch straps. And I think that was, it, it's what I wanted to talk about, you know, and because I, I just let him go on what he's interested in. But in hindsight, the, the the key thing I take away from that, and I, and I think it goes to whatever it is he's going to do going forward, is that a good watch strap is a good watch strap twenty years from now, and it would have been a good watch strap twenty or thirty years ago. Whereas the actual Apple Watch itself, technically, is you know the one you're wearing today is going to be a relic in ten years. Yep. And I really feel like at the heart of it, that is why he's leaving Apple. Is yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I think he's tired of developing, designing things that are only going to be relevant for three years. At best. At best. And wants to be designing things that will be relevant forever. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I I think it all it, it's the same thing as wanting to just do different stuff. Like the the, the what, what drives someone to be creative, and and again, there's so many constraints, you know, within you know. You uh, the other thing I wonder is I'm curious with the um, you know, 
this whole idea, my, my point that I started at the very, very beginning, that I feel like this kind of started four, you know, four years ago, where uh, it, you know, right after the the watch had launched, that they came out, he's going to be again chief design officer and not manage anyone. And if you're not managing anyone, you're not leading the organization. <laughs> like, you, yeah. you, like yes, they can come and talk yeah. to you and consult with you, but like the it's intense. Being an executive for Apple is extremely yeah. intense, and if you are not in the middle of it, in the thick of it, yeah. every day. You are not a part of it. It's just like there. It's not a. It's not a malicious thing. It's just impossible to to be that. And you know, as that's why I thought as soon as that announcement came out that you know he's like he's on his way out. But at the same time, you know, particularly then Apple couldn't really afford to to lose him. So one, he got to work on Apple Park, which fits in your point about yep. something that's going to last a long time. Right. That is going to be meaningful. Is is something completely new to try out. You know creative juices and all those sorts of sorts of things but also it was good for apple because apple couldn't afford the 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 pr of yeah. losing him at that time that was when the questions you know can tip cook lead apple can apple survive without steve jobs like johnny ive was the the sort of the, the the guy that people who never understood how Apple worked and mm -hmm. presumed once Steve Jobs went away that Apple would be over, they pinned their hopes on Johnny Ive. He was a totem. He was something that, you know, this idea that Apple could could systematically produce great products was still hadn't completely taken hold, particularly once Jobs Jobs had left. And so Apple needed him to be there, even if as I would contend, he was not there day to day. And yeah. and uh and you know and I think that that all all this sort of fits fits together. Yeah, I think it does. I totally do. Um, it, well, the other thing I was saying, I wonder if Apple would have lost him sooner too if they hadn't given him the software. Because to to the point I was making before, right. when, what's the hardware like? Just the what you can actually do was sort of diminishing. Like software gave him something new to do, and which kept him around. And then Apple Park gave him something new to do, which which kept him around. And now there's not anything sort of new to do. And and but it's okay because they've spent the last four years sort of easing easing away from from where he was in the organization. And I, frankly, I don't think anything's going to really change for Apple. Um, I I think that to the extent that I actually think it could potentially be a positive. I mean, I think you look at something like the MacBook or some of the other, yeah. uh, or even iOS, its design. Uh, I think there was a maybe an uh, went too far, too much in being beautiful and too little in sort of how it works. Yep. And you know, which 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 happens. Uh, well, I, I think that's a great point. Here's an alternate question: Is would 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 Johnny Ive have left sooner or stayed longer if Steve Jobs hadn't died? If Steve Jobs were still around, still CEO, or maybe, you know, if if he had, you know, changed to chairman or whatever. But if Jobs if Jobs were still around, would Johnny Ive have left sooner? Or would he still be there because the that collaboration would would fulfill him in a way that without Without Jobs as his collaborator, he's he's no longer satisfied. That's I, fascinating. I think he would still be there just because you got the sense that there was such a bond and yeah. a and a connection there yeah. that that would trump everything. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating question to consider. Well, and the other factor, the X factor, is that clearly one of Steve. Jobs's numerous genius talents was a sort of uh, Pied Piper 
ability to convince people to do what he wanted them to do. So like Johnny might have thought, you know, three, four years ago in the world where Steve Jobs is still around, like, I think I'm done. I think I'm after Apple Park, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to leave the company and he's going to go tell Steve Jobs this. And Steve Jobs would, he'd walk out of Steve Jobs' office after signing like uh, an agreement that he'll stay for 20 years. <laughs> right? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, like that could have happened. So who knows? But it's an interesting question. I do think you're right that without getting software under his his, his domain, he he probably would have left sooner. Because I think there, I, I think, I think you make, it's a very key observation that there's just, there was, it, without software, under his umbrella and direct control, there was just so much less to do, right? I mean, it's, yep. you know, it, it, it's fascinating to, to look at. You look at all these products. Well, what, one of the, you know, you, how do you look at the products? I have, I've got the, I took out that, uh, you know, the coffee table book that they put out a few years ago, Um. And I was which, thinking, which probably goes in some sort of category with the edition watches, if we want to discuss. Well, but I, I do think, I, I, like, I really want to give you full credit for going back five years, or was it 2015 when they announced this chief design officer, and that you you put forward. I think I think this is the beginning of the end. He's gonna he's gonna leave, I, and I think that the time frame that has happened since qualifies as being you being right you know, that he's out, but I don't think it was as clear of a plan. I think that if he really knew exactly what he, how long he was going to stay, I think that that coffee table book wouldn't have come out until now. Like it, 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 in hindsight, it came out a couple of years too early because now there's a few products that are clearly of the Johnny Ive era that didn't come out before the book was printed. You know what I mean? Like the the book is such an interesting. <laughs> it's, I, it's such an interesting product. And again, I think you're right that it's it is sort of along the lines of the gold edition watches. Uh, you know that it is. It wasn't meant to sell in large quantities. It's super expensive. Um, well, it, it exists because Johnny wants it to exist. Yeah, I think is is what I was driving at. But I, you know. I don't know. And it's like, I doubt they're going to make another version of it, but I, I kind of wish that they would make a new one and just put, you know, just for completeness sake, put, put the last like two or three years of, of products in there. Uh, well, I mean, I, I honestly though, I, I, I'm not sure how much, how involved he really was. I mean, it's, it's, is the Apple watch, the Apple watch is in the book. Yeah. Um, But I really question how much Johnny did after the Apple watch, to be totally honest. Uh, you know, the, to I, I, my view, I mean, I don't, again, this is total speculation and conjecture, no, no sort of information, but my sense is he shipped the Apple watch. It was extremely draining. I remember, you know, you discussed the time, how, t- how tired he seemed that New Yorker yep. profile yep. came out yep. and, and I think he was done. Like, yep. I think he switched to Apple park and honestly, I, I don't. You know, you mentioned in your post this week, which I think was the one was a great post. I think is the one point I disagreed with that we're going to see Johnny Ives' impact for the next five years. I don't think so. I, I think hmm. that we've seen it, and I think it's over. Like, and 
and that's okay. Like, I, if you think about it, the watch was such a natural sort of endpoint for him. Like, it was the it, he's expressed this interest in wearables, this idea of things that are on your body. Like, a lot of his discussion outside of Apple has been on this sort of topic. He's talked about healthcare things and those, the, you know, and his dad was, you know, in the hospital and, and talked about how poorly designed, you know, that's mm-hmm. those sorts of things were. And it makes sense that, like, that was sort of, that was it. That, that was. That was what he went out on. And, you know, if you think about something, you know, and it's right time to go out because what, what's next? Let's say the AR glasses are probably next. Like if you want to ship the AR glasses, you have to – it's going to be a huge slog. You have to be there through shipping, and then you have to start the process of the unwinding process that he spent the last four years doing. So if he if he commits to the next product, he's committing for like the next ten years. And whereas you know someone of Ive's stature and the importance that he has in the mythology of Apple and and what goes into what making Apple Apple and the stock price and all the and you know can Apple survive without Steve Jobs? Like he's not someone that could walk out the door when he's done. He had to have this wind down process. That's just the price of being who he is and the importance he is to Apple. And I think it makes much more sense to think, like, you know what? He shipped the watch. He stepped back from data responsibilities. He spent all his time on Apple Park. Apple Park is now done. And and the, the industrial design team has been able to get used to working without him for several years now. And it's just like again, it was shocking. But if you if you actually walk through step by step everything that happened, it, it makes it makes sense. He had nothing more to do. He had done what he wanted to do. All the jobs were done. The team was handed off. And you know, it's almost like it'd be a surprise if he stayed. I think it's a little less binary and a little bit more uh, gray. Uh, what his role has been. I don't think it's as much as well. He checked out a few years ago. Uh, and what, but before that, he was super checked in and doing it. I, I to make a very, maybe it's not that rough of an analogy. Um, I I I think back to uh, the fact that George Lucas didn't direct Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, but specifically Empire, which is to me the best of the Star Wars movies. Um, because he had, he almost had like, a, by all accounts, had almost had like a, a nervous breakdown directing Star Wars to get Star Wars out, just, just because it was so much work and it, it just exhausting, and being the director was so much. But it wasn't like, well, he, he's not going to direct the next movie, but it's not like he wasn't involved, right? It was like you know, he he still wrote the screenplay, and and it. It is very George Lucasy. It's it's if you know anything about George Lucas's work, uh, you can't watch The Empire Strikes Back and not see how George Lucasy it is. But he wasn't the director, and I think that over the last five years or so, and putting putting the flag at Apple Watch is possibly a good marker. You know, that he moved, it, it, it's not like he checked out and hasn't been involved, but he's more of an executive producer than right. the director yeah. of of things. Absolutely. I know. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. It, so it's I, not like you he, know, he, he, he walked off into the sunset and was gone. Like, but it, it was like, instead of driving the car, yeah. he was like the, the, the crew chief. Uh, right. If, if that makes and, sense. And maybe, you know, I really do think, you know, uh, maybe was more of like what Steve Jobs had always been, right? Where Jobs wasn't the designer who was carving a, a, a 
you know, physically carving a model of what this piece of hardware might look like so that you could hold it in your hand and feel the size and feel the corners or, or directly driving the 3D printing machine that would generate these, you know, like a prototype or something like that. Um, but he was obviously the person who was like this or this first one, A, not B. A and give me 10 more versions of a that are slightly different and uh, get them to me by next week. I think Johnny Ive had, has been in that sort of role for a while. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think that's right. I think it's a great analogy to jobs. Like you know, jobs ha- was not a, he was not actually designing the products. He was the editor uh, that yeah. was, you know, making those decisions. And, and, you know, is, is, you know, to go back to sort of the edition and things like that, it was probably uh, it was probably a good thing. Uh, you know, like if you're the designer and the editor, you tend to not edit yourself very yeah. well. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, which again, the edition is. is the, I'm glad the edition exists because it's kind of funny that it existed at one point and we can remember all the speculation about what it was going to cost and figuring out how much gold was in them. Like it, it, it's a funny sort of footnote in Apple history that ultimately doesn't matter that much. Uh, but right. it, it is an example of why everyone needs an editor, I think. It didn't hurt them because they weren't counting on it. It wasn't like their, their you know, Tim Cook's spreadsheet with how are we going to make money selling digital watches involved selling a large quantity of the $20,000 gold ones, right? Like, I, I think that whatever their even most optimistic uh, take on how many of those were going to sell was <laughs> very small. It was a statement, though, right? It, was, it wasn't about, you know, uh, making a gazillion dollars. That's what the, the aluminum ones are for, uh, the ones that they knew everybody was going to buy and are sort of the – have always been and, and should be considered the default Apple Watches. Um, but doing the ones in gold and then it, in subsequent years, the ones in ceramic were statements. But the gold – to start with the gold ones, like the ceramic ones to me – because uh, they were a lot cheaper, I think they were like what two thousand dollars. I mean, no, cheap. a thousand, I think a thousand, thousand, a thousand yeah. dollars. And they were they were great, by the way. Oh, um, fantastic! I did not own one. I think they were the best version of the Apple Watch were, were those white ceramic ones. I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I, I and and it's funny because I think I was just about to say I kind of wish I had bought one, and then I think, well, wait, no, it would actually be old enough now that I wouldn't be wearing it. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah. I and they they as my wife found out they break when you drop them. Yeah, so. well, that's the problem with ceramic. But yep. you know, it was an experiment with materials. Uh, they did brag, you know, when they had the gold one. They talked about how they like you know uh, engineered their own gold alloy. <laughs> like, yep. but the, part of that too is that Johnny Ive, it, it, and I think it's essential to understand this. It's like I don't want this discussion to make it sound like he was concerned only with. Uh, fashion and surface matters uh quite the opposite he he he's uh, absolutely uh, one of the world's leading uh minds on like material science like he he's absolutely so incredibly knowledgeable about uh a lot of the actual technical factors that go into products here's a story i heard a couple months ago this is this came to light when the uh Samsung Galaxy Fold was <laughs> shipped to reviewers <laughs> and and within 24 hours like half of them broke, right? 
<laughs> yeah, like peeling off. Well, it was like six weeks ago. I don't know, six or seven yeah. weeks ago, something like that. And it, it, um, but back when Samsung announced it at 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 some kind of press conference in like early February, you know, three three months, two three months before they ship these things to reviewers, and somebody who works at Apple on software uh, had a meeting with Johnny to discuss. I don't I don't actually even know what they were actually discussing, but it came up. And he said, and, and this story was relayed to me after the Galaxy Fold shipped to reviewers and turned out to be a complete debacle, but said the day that they announced it in February, he had a meeting, you know, his team had met with Johnny Ive and Johnny Ive explained in technical detail exactly why it was going to fail and said, oh, this is it. I don't know why they announced that we've looked into that. That's it's, you know, there's and just went into great technical detail why folding a, an OLED screen like that was going to be fragile and <laughs> wouldn't work. It just it really, really, and I, I thought it was such a great example of under you know that the the motto "design is how it works," right? Not just what it looks like. Um, yeah, no, it's just like the accumulated knowledge and experience that you get from living and breathing and experimenting over, you know, decades. Yeah. Like that, you can look at something like that and immediately know what the issues are and what, what, what like, what, yeah. what, what will matter and what will not work. All right, let me take one last break here and thank our third and final sponsor, and then we let's talk about the uh, afterwards. Let's talk about this the organizational structure that Apple is putting design into going forward. Uh, and any other things that pop into your mind, Ben. Uh, but let me thank Squarespace. Ah, oh, I love Squarespace. Look, Squarespace is the all-in-one website hosting platform. Everything you need to do to host your own website, registering domain names, picking a template, customizing the design, adding features, you do it all in Squarespace. They have a great new iOS app for modifying, controlling, running your website from your phone, from your iPad. Great. On the desktop, which is where they really got started and where the main Squarespace interface is, you just do everything right there in the browser. Super WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. We don't talk about WYSIWYG that much anymore because uh, so much stuff, it, it, we either just assume it is or isn't. But it's Squarespace. You just it, What you see is what you get. You just look at it. You drag stuff around. You drag stuff out. Move it from the left to the right. You do it all right there in the website. It's a fantastic service. It is. I, I've said this many times. I know they sponsor the show all the time. I have to think of things to say. I, one of my favorite things to think about with Squarespace is I know that the people who listen to this podcast tend to be technically minded. You're sort of the the nerd friend or family member. People come to you maybe if they need a website. You can help them out. You know how to make a website. Send them to Squarespace, and then they can just do it themselves. It's not on your shoulders. If they do need technical support, Squarespace has award-winning technical support. Uh, they probably won't need it, though. It's all Right there, so easy to understand. Uh, it's absolutely just the best way to create and host your own website. No skill level or coding experience required, but if you do have coding experience, you can get in there and customize it as deeply as you want to. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name registration. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com slash talk show, squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you do sign up and pay, 
You get a free demo, number one, to start, so you don't have to pay anything. But when you do pay, just make sure to go to squarespace.com slash talk show and use the offer code talk show and get 10% off your first purchase up to a year. My thanks to Squarespace for continuing to support this show. All right. Where do we, where do we talk about in the remainder of the show? Well, I think the, the design aspect where, so first off, design's being split. Like there is a UX guy and yeah. there is a, a hardware guy and they are both reporting up to, up to Jeff Williams yeah. who, and, and it's important to note at the same time, there was also a new head of operations named. Yeah. And I think like, I, mi- it's I missed that yesterday. Yeah. It's super important to consider because as long, so I think it's wrong to say that design is now under operations. What is right to say is that Jeff Williams is the CEO in waiting. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's actually a better way to, to frame what happened as opposed to, to like, he's not the C, he's not the operations guy anymore. He is the COO. And just as Tim Cook was the COO and, and Jeff Williams replaced Tim Cook to be the head of operations. Like now operations is one of many things that Jeff Williams manages as opposed to the thing that he manages. Yeah. And he's been in charge of Apple watch from the beginning. And like, like in charge, in charge, like, right. like he was like he, Johnny Ive reported right. to him, even though Johnny Ive, like he wasn't, he wasn't putting power enough. Uh, from what I've heard, uh, Williams was not a huge edition fan. He wasn't maybe in the place to, to shoot it down, but he like owned the entire project, not just the operations part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, now these guys report to him and I do think that the, um, what is this? Is he on the SVP page now? This the new uh, senior yeah, vice yes. yeah uh, Sobin Khan I believe yeah Sabi Khan S A B I H Khan is now the senior vice president of operations. Senior vice president is the level where you get a picture on the executive profile page. Uh, yep. Uh, and you don't name a guy senior vice president of operations while there still is a COO without. Uh, it, it, it's COO is just sort of, it, it's like exactly what you said. It's like what Tim Cook was under Steve Jobs. It's sure operations, I guess, is technically still reporting to him, but it's, it's. It, right. It, it's it, called chief operations officer, but what it actually means in the case of Apple is second in command in the company. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and like of the entire company. Like, yeah. so the, the, like all of Apple now reports to Jeff Williams, not just the operations side. Right. And so if we want to start speculating there's there's a part of me like I I I didn't pick up on on that when I wrote yesterday uh, and I was so if anything I don't regret it but it you know it was a hot take you know I I wrote I wrote my piece within an hour of finding out you know the news um, and my my take was highly critical of having the hardware and software design people report to Jeff Williams. Um, and I, I'm not going to say I regret it, but I think the alternate take is exactly what you said, which is that it's not so much about putting those things under operations, but establishing Jeff Williams as the CEO in waiting, uh, which in turn is interesting because it, I don't know that Jeff Williams is even younger than Tim Cook. They're both, I think, roughly the same age. Uh, but I... 
if we, you know, for all the the speculation we in the commentariat have done over the last few years about, hey, is Johnny Ive on the way out? I think now the question is, is Tim Cook on the way out? Yep. It, you know, on a time frame. And Tim, of Tim Cook is two years. years older than uh, Jeff Williams, by the right. way. Tim Cook okay. is 58. Jeff Williams is 56. Right. Uh, you know, and is it just, you know, uh, so not even a question of age, but maybe, you know, of uh, just being tired of it. I don't know, you know, that, it, you know, moving on and maybe having a next, doing something else with the remainder of his life. I, who knows? But it's certainly, uh, it, there's no other way to look at it. I, I, even if Tim Cook is going to be CEO for the next 20 years, uh, there's no other way to look at yesterday's announcement. I mean, it's certainly obviously mostly about Johnny Ive, but it's clearly a promotion of Jeff Williams. Yep. I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, the I could it's easier than ever before, I think, to see Tim Cook doing something else. I think I mean, I think the uh, his passion around this privacy issue uh, mm-hmm. I could definitely see him sort of becoming chairman of the board or something and becoming like a full-time advocate or uh, for privacy in technology companies, you know, being against what Google and Facebook yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, he's constrained and limited in what he can do as Apple CEO. And despite the fact he pushes the line as as far as he absolutely can. And again, this is not a judgment call on either side saying it's good or bad, but it's clearly going on. and something that clearly drives him and animates him. And I could see, you know, it, it, again, this is pure speculation, knowing nothing. But you're right. Jeff Williams is quite clearly without question number two in the company and, and nothing says that like putting design to your point putting design under him because if apple is to remain apple and design is to remain what it what it must for apple then the only way that this like to your point your hot take would be correctly would be totally on point if um, this is the only explanation in which which there's a a a good reason you know to your objection is if it's basically he's the ceo and in everything but name you know, I, people, critics of Tim Cook, uh, people who think, and, and some of them sincere, I mean, it's a reasonable debate to be had. I mean, Tim Cook is not Steve Jobs. Uh, I think to his credit, as I wrote yesterday, he's never tried to be, and, and he has never tried to be a product person. You know, he's, he's, he is who he is. He's, he's seemingly extremely comfortable with what he's, who he is and what he's good at. And hasn't tried to take over product design. And and I really think, as a direct comparison, I really think that was the downfall of Apple in the Scully era, is that John Scully also was a, a CEO who was not a product person, you know, famously came from the soda industry. Uh, and, you know, after pushing Steve Jobs out of the country, out of the company, not the country, but... Uh, Seemingly, I think, convinced himself that he was, that he was a product person. And the Newton was a fascinating product. It was definitely Scully's baby. Uh, and I think it's, I think it gets a bad rap in history. Uh, but it, it uh, he, they obviously shipped it way too soon. It was, right. it, he didn't, he didn't know how to edit. He, right. He, he, the, it's it, one thing to have a, a product idea. It's another thing right. to actually understand what it means to ship a product out, out the door. Right. And, 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 and how it's a fascinating example of how, 
the first impression can really sink a product. Whereas, it, you know, if the Newton had shipped two years later and had been a little smaller, had handwriting recognition that worked as it did within two or three years, they had excellent handwriting recognition. Um, it it wouldn't have had the the stink of failure around it that it all, it never shook from when it originally debuted in Doonesbury, you know, <laughs> Dunes, everything from Doonesbury to the Simpsons <laughs> mocked it mercilessly for for its inability to recognize handwriting, which was the whole point of the device. The, <laughs> the whole point of the device was that it would recognize your handwriting. Yep. And it didn't it couldn't do the one thing it could it was supposed to do. It would be like if the iPhone shipped and couldn't make a phone call. <laughs> you know, like it just it just couldn't it it just wasn't ready to ship. Tim Cook's never been that, you know, I, I think that's to his credit. Um but I do I and and uh, my optimistic take on this and I wrote this yesterday that that Johnny Ives departure. I don't think, you know, I'm a huge fan. I think he's a genius. I I just, you know, we could go on and on for hours and hours about more of his product designs, right? I could do a podcast where we just page through that book, the the big 60-pound coffee table book, and spend minutes on each page talking about these wonderful products and how, how nicely designed they are and all these details. Um, but I do think that without Steve Jobs as his collaborator, that something significant was lost. Like you said, like he's not a good self-editor. Uh, you can't help but think, to name just two products, you can't help but think that this uh, MacBook keyboard fiasco, which we're in the midst of and has been ongoing for years, is uh, uh, attributable to Johnny Ive's obsession with device thinness, that they made the, the keyboard with so little travel and with these keys that aren't durable because they needed to do something radical with the keyboard to make the whole device as thin as he wanted the device to be. Yep. It, remember it was jobs that said design is how it works. It right. wasn't Johnny Ive that said that. Right. And you know, uh, you know, there's, there's, I, I, I don't know if it's uh, apocryphal or not, but it's often attributable to Albert Einstein that, uh, uh, everything should be as simple as possible, but not more so. Something along those lines. I think it's because it's an apophrical quote. There's no one definition. But it's a great sentiment. Everything should be as simple as possible, but not more so. You know, that, that there's a point where you can make things too simple, right? Yeah, uh, everything should be as thin as possible, oh, but no more. Yeah, exactly. As thin as possible, but no more. And I think it's that the, the current entire generation of MacBooks is a bit too thin and therefore has keyboards that are... That are that are, that are aren't aren't thick enough, uh, and I think the other product that comes to mind is the trash can Mac Pro, uh, which isn't as important, right? The MacBook is super important to Apple. It's the you know it's really the only Macs that really matter, right? Like Apple could still be a fantastically successful PC maker making nothing but MacBooks. Like the iMacs and the Mac, the new Mac Pro, that they're all rounding errors. And it's great. It would be a whole separate podcast. It's important that they make them. I'm glad they make them. And for a certain segment of the market, it, it really is important. But at a financial level, almost every Mac sold is a MacBook. And to have a 
a flaky keyboard and to have it be, you know, have this reputation and, and all these stories being written about it is, is not good for the company. The Mac Pro isn't as important, but I think that the trash can Mac Pro is almost more telling because to me, the new Mac Pro, the one they just announced three weeks ago, is a Mac Pro designed for true high-end workstation users. The 2013 trash can Mac Pro seems to me, and in hindsight, I, it, this sounds glib, but it seems like Johnny Ive's idea of a Mac Pro. That's exactly it. it, it it's it's a shockingly poorly designed device if you actually think about what the point of it is. It, like you, it was limited to one use case, which was like high end video production, right. and it wasn't actually even good at that because of the thermal the thermal issues. Right. And not, like it's it's in retrospect, it's kind of amazing that Apple shipped this product because it's it's it's. It, it, but it's beautiful. It, it, it is. It was small, and it fit on the desk, and all those sorts of things. And yeah, it's like I put I put a line in my day up to day. The idea like re- like revolutions always go too far and sort of veer towards tyranny. Mm. And like if you again to take the whole picture to start with the, those those iMacs and to make something desirable that was previously never desirable was such a tremendous breakthrough. But it went too far, and you ended up with this Mac Pro that was gorgeous and beautiful and, and desirable tiny. and yeah. a. T- <laughs> Terrible computer. And a terrible computer, for, or a particularly terrible computer for the market it was intended for. No, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> MacBook Pro is the exact right. same sort of thing. Like, right. yes, thinner is good. Yes, beautiful good. Right. Yes, that form factor. You know, you had that titanium you know power book but it was it was huge it was it was big it was heavy and to, and to bring it down and to bring it down and and you know to culminate in like those 20 what is it 2015 2013 uh you know that, that were that were perfect but then you had to go too far and and the port the, the getting rid of the ports and the keyboard situation it's like that's what happens you go too far and, and particularly if you're by yourself and i think i think the point you're driving at is you asked what would happen if jobs was still there well you would have someone pulling back right? right you have someone saying no we can't ship that like uh you know like it actually design is how it works and yeah. that how it works aspect of design it was if if i've had a weak spot it was undervaluing that it, 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 same thing with the ios 7 like yeah. ios 7 was so much more beautiful than ios 6 and it was much harder to use like you didn't yep. know you didn't know which button to push. You don't know what was a button, what was a label. You yeah. couldn't tell if it was capital letters or not capital letters. Like yeah. at the end of the day, that is a design is is how it works. Yeah. And design and, is also how it looks. And, yeah, and, and, and remember how thin and wispy the 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 fonts were. I mean, yeah, it was, it was uh, Helvetica, Helvetica Noia at the time, not because it predated the existence of San Francisco, but the the fonts that were so thin. And if you took a screenshot, it was beautiful. It really did look good. And and those thin fonts, you know, there's a, you know, there's all sorts of areas of print where a thin font is perfect and what you need. But as a user interface font, it was, <laughs> it was not good. It was it was not a usable, uh, you know. It went too far. It's no better way to put it than what you just said a minute or two ago, that a revolution, every revolution goes too far. And and iOS interface needed a revolution. You know, it was great, but it, it went too far. And it, it seemingly, in the years since, still was all very Johnny Ive. And I kind of feel like with him out, there's a good chance that we might, it, it might move in a good direction. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the thing about the Mac Pro, I think the most interesting thing from a sort of organizational perspective is this Mac Pro professional users group or whatever the thing that they set up. I mean, you would know more about it because you went to that briefing. But this idea that Apple is overtly saying we're going to go out and listen to customers instead of build a jewel and drop it from heaven. Yeah. Like it, that that is a th- – that's a – uh, it's backlash is the term like for it's a rebound. I don't know. I, I can't think of the right word, but it's a it's an appropriate retreat from sort of uh, from that revolution. Like at some point, you do need to understand customers. You do need to listen to them. And do you want to go all the way in the opposite direction where you're you know Microsoft and you're you can't actually move things forward because you're so bound to backwards compatibility and, mm. and giving customers what they want and those sorts of things. No, you can go too much in the other direction, but you know, you, where can you find that sort of happy middle where you're actually understanding and giving customers what they need, where the design is what works best, not just what looks best. And, and yeah, I think it, it, there's a reason to be optimistic here because uh, you know, that's a, organizational adjustment you're not going to get that internal individual sort of adjustment and that's fine like johnny ive was amazing he was incredible he he did what he was sent on this earth to do and and i wish him the best in everything that he does and i think there's a there's there's a reason to be optimistic about apple by the fact that he's leaving and that's is not a criticism of it all it's just right. the way things work yeah and i you know time, the time had come i also think it could be and, and, you know, again, the proof will be in the pudding and you just need good people in charge. But I think that it could be a very good thing for Apple in general to have software and hardware design separated again as yes. different people. And I really think because I think fundamentally and I know we're running short on time, but fundamentally, Johnny Ive is a hardware guy. He is a hardware person. And I feel like under his direction, the software the, the problems that, that a lot of us have with the software design from the iOS 7 era forward were all about subserviating the software to the hardware. And having someone who's purely the software advocate um, and, and, and completely isolated from the hardware in terms of day-to-day responsibilities could really help bolster the overall design quality and just plain old fashioned usability of the software. Yep. I, I completely agree. Um, anyway, any other points you want to make? I know we're, we're, this is great. I, we don't do emergency podcasts. Yeah. Bill, Bill Simmons loves to call him an emergency pod, you know, and I don't know how he does it because Bill Simmons, whose show you've been on and have, were fantastic on, but like when there's like a major like NBA trade or something like that, he put, he gets a podcast out like 70 minutes later. I don't know how that's possible. I don't know if he just lives in the podcast. studio. No, he has a studio built in like a, a yeah, I think he has like a guest house and he has like a studio built there. So he literally like goes out to the backyard and records. I don't know how he does it so quick, but on the other hand, I you know I guess he's just he's just the the most natural born podcaster on the planet. Oh yeah, he, he, it's incredible. He's he he's a great writer, and I. But it doesn't fit. actually matter what he says. Like like there will be things you disagree with, but the 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 way he manages and runs a podcast and interviews people is it's incredible it's he's, he's the best there is i completely uh, agree you know and maybe other people can look at me and say well how how does john gruber get his column out on johnny ive's departure 60 minutes after the news dropped i maybe you know because that's the thing i'm good at i could have never done this podcast last night i, I just couldn't have i i needed i needed hours and hours overnight to to digest it more to be able to talk about it um 
But so for me, one day later, this is an emergency podcast, <laughs> and I know you're on vacation, uh, and I just really knew that I wanted to do it with you, and I'm so glad that we were able to make this happen, Ben. Yeah, well, I'm just I I, I find uh, the thing that again, just the like, we talked about it with the end of the next era, like the, with like the end of the Johnny Ive era, and and to me, there's I you know it's always tempting to look backwards and overfit things and see how all things fit together. But again, just tying it in with the end of the iTunes era, the end of sort of the iPhone being the, the everything and everything and Apple sort of branching out. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the iPod going from conception to launching in eight months and, you know, Apple sells, you know, as many iPhones in like five hours that they sold total iPods in like the first quarter that was for sale. Right. And, and in, it's a different company. Like the, this idea of having this, this titular figure at the top that, that drives everything. It just, it really starts to fall apart when you're shipping hundreds of millions of phones a year yeah. and you're doing all these services. And I've pushed a long time for Apple to change like their organizational structure and which I think they have They're like that guy in charge of Siri who came from yeah. Google. He now reports to Tim cook. It's a separate division. He's not under Craig Federighi like it was previously, which is exactly what they need to do there. It's such a bigger company doing so many more things. You can't, be the same forever and and you know i think apple for a few years was kind of like san francisco like people are trying to say no we need to hold on to the character of san francisco yeah, yeah. and what actually ends up happening is you build no new houses right and you lose all the people that create that character and you just get a bunch of rich people like i think apple fell in that trap from an organizational structure standpoint wanting to say we're gonna be the way steve jobs designed us be very functional we're gonna be very focused and Actually, it was bad for the company. It produced, it produced, it ossified the company. And I feel like over the last, particularly the last six months, I, I mentioned this on on trajectory. I think that earnings warning mm. was the best thing that could have happened to Apple because it kind of shook them loose from this sort of coma they were almost in. And I think this fits in it. You know, Johnny Ive deserves all the credit in the world, and I actually think it's probably good news for Apple that he's moving on. Like Apple, yeah. this is a new Apple for better or worse. And they don't have a choice. And right. it's good to see them embracing the fact that they need to be something new because they can never go back to being what they were. Uh, that's a great way to put it. Ben Thompson, thank you. Everybody can read your work every day at stratechery.com or stratechery. Uh, how is it pronounced? Stratechery. Stratechery. Uh, <laughs> and on Twitter, you are at Ben Thompson and also at no tech Ben. <laughs> For yeah, which I shouldn't promote because I no. swear I, I I I lose I lose customers. Hey, we didn't we just did this whole emergency podcast and never once mentioned uh, basketball or baseball. Even though I'm going I'm going to two baseball games this weekend, so uh, <laughs> uh, I, I I thought about bringing it up, but we were limited on time, so right. we we, uh, we we can't we, mention we it. But I think it. you know we're looking at a, a fairly high likelihood that my favorite team, the Yankees, and yours, the Brewers, might be might be colliding in the World Series. They're they're both you know uh, Brewers have had a rough stretch though. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. We'll see. We, we have major pitching issues. <laughs> we'll see. Anyway, Ben, thank you very much. Uh, I will talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Bye-bye.